Our Father, it's because of your great gift to us that we are able to call you our Father and to know that we have been given the right to approach the creator of the universe and to invoke your blessing upon us in the name of your Son who came to die for us. And Lord, as we study the Word of God, which is the message of the sovereign God to the hearts of his people, I ask you to illuminate our minds that we might have understanding that is parallel to our need and that you will help us, Lord, to study not simply for information's sake, but for the sake of changing our lives and of making, bringing our hearts into align, alignment with your heart. Oh, Father, we pray that you will touch each one of us here this morning. Uh, there are many different needs represented today in this room, and we ask that you will meet those needs, and we in turn will allow you to be the potter and that we will be pliable clay in your hands. Father, again, I would pray for every class in our Sunday school this morning uh, that you will cause the children, the uh, teenagers, the adults to be attentive and, and learning. And I pray for the service as it uh, transpires that you will be very present there too. And again, we'll give you the praise in Christ's name. Amen. You will turn in the scripture to the 28th chapter of the book of Exodus, the 28th chapter of the book of Exodus. Last week, if you weren't here, unfortunately, you didn't get to see the little model of the tabernacle that uh, was brought in. And we talked about the different uh, features of the tabernacle and the enclosure around it and so forth. But uh, we've been studying that over the past several weeks now. And today, we're continuing in our study specifically of the priesthood. The priests, and, and, and this 28th chapter deals primarily with the attire, the clothing worn by the high priest, the, the priest that God had chosen amongst all of them to be the one priest with the privilege of coming in to the Holy of Holies once a year to stand before God and to intercede for his people. So let's continue looking at the attire of that particular high priest, beginning with verse 15. And you shall make a breastpiece of judgment, the work of a skillful workman. Like the work of the ephod, you shall make it. And of course, we have just studied the previous verses, the ephod, and if you weren't here, you can read through those verses from 6 to 14. Like the work of the ephod, you shall make it, of gold, of blue, and purple and scarlet material, and fine twisted linen, you shall make it. It shall be square and folded double, a span in length and a span in width. And you shall mount on it four rows of stones. The first row shall be a row of ruby, topaz, emerald. The second row, turquoise, a sapphire, and a diamond. The third row, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. The fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold filigree. And the stones shall be according to the names of the sons of Israel, twelve according to their names. They shall be like the engravings of a seal, each according to his name for the twelve tribes. And you shall make on the breastpiece chains of twisted cordage work in, go in pure gold. And you shall make on the breastpiece two rings of gold, and shall put the two rings on the two edges of the breastpiece.' <coughs> 
and you shall put on and you shall put the two cords of gold on the two rings at the ends of the breastpiece and you shall put the other two ends of the two cords on the two filigree settings and put them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod at the front of it and you shall make two rings of gold and shall place them on the two ends of the breastpiece on the edge of it which is toward the inner side of the ephod and you shall make two rings of gold and put them on the bottom of the two shoulder pieces of the ephod on the front of it close to the place where it is joined above the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And they shall bind the breastpiece by its rings to the rings of the ephod with blue cord, that it may be on the skillfully woven band of the ephod, that the breastpiece may not come loose from the ephod. And Aaron shall carry the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment over his heart when he enters the holy place for a memorial before the Lord continually. And you shall put in the breastpiece of judgment the Urim and Thummim, and they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. And Aaron shall carry the judgment of the sons of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. Well, I think it's quite obvious from the reading there, and of course the difficult translation in English from the Hebrew, that it's not totally absolutely clear what this looked like. I mean, we have the general picture, but, uh, you know, the rings and the the gold cordage and the blue cords and obviously what, ha what we have here is, is something by which the uh, breastpiece is fastened to the immediate underguard, uh, undergarment which is called the ephod so that it will be permanently in place and won't fall off as the high priest goes through his duties. Now what is interesting here is that this passage of scripture describes what is probably the most splendid and yet the most mysterious part of the high priest's attire. This breastpiece, which is called the breastpiece of judgment or the breastpiece of decision making. What we have here from almost all descriptions that uh, can be gained from this is a pouch. We have something that is like, you know, some of you wear the little cord around your neck and you have this little pouch in which you put your passport for a foreign travel or something and you put it under your shirt. Well, this is something like that, except it's, uh, it's a, it says it's a span in width and a span in height, so that's nine inches approximately, this way by this way, folded double in a pouch form. And this particular garment, a piece of the garment, was for keeping the Urim and the Thummim, which were used to make decisions. That's why it's called the breast piece of decision making. The basic material here is exactly the same material that the ephod was made out of. That is, made of this fine linen with gold and purple and scarlet a thread woven in through it in blue. The um, front of the pouch, though, is what's really interesting. And, and that's what several verses here deal with, is the, the front of this, this pouch that's hanging on the, that's attached to the ephod of the high priest. All of the stones which are listed here are what we would call precious or semi-precious stones. We are not told how large the stones were, but of course with something that's 9 inches by 9 inches and there are 12 stones on it, that gives us some limitation, of course, on the size of the stones. But we can surmise at least three things here. First of all, that they were each large enough for the, a tribal name to be inscribed on the stone. So we're not talking in, about an itty-bitty thing here that you had to get a mag magnifying glass to see. I mean, it had to be a big enough stone 
So the tribal name, you know, Manasseh, could be inscribed, of course, in Hebrew, on the surface of the stone. The scripture says, inscribed as you inscribe a seal. Now, if you've studied ancient history, you know seals are very common from the ancient world. I don't mean the things that toss balls around and go, hur, hur, hur. but uh, these little uh, signet, uh, not a signet, a signet's a ring, but a seal, which is a raised, a little object with a raised surface with writing or something on it that can be embossed into clay to, well, it's like a signature in the ancient world. And there are all kinds of them. There, there were some that are shaped like little medallions. There were some that were cylindrical and you rolled them across the clay and they, they made a, a continuous uh, a little panel of w which was somebody's signature, but it's usually little images on there, maybe cuneiform writing. So they, it actually had to be in, carved into the surface of this, of this stone. Secondly, they were probably, at least I believe, the stones were probably of uniform size or as close as they could make them. I mean, we're not talking about a little one here and a great big one over here. I think they were pretty much of uniform size. And then thirdly, it seems most likely that they were cabochon. That is, that they were um, non-faceted, that they were convex stones, highly polished with a flat underside that would, you know, fix on to the front here, uh, into the gold filigree around here with the flat side against the breast piece, and then the curved side, of course, moving out from the breast piece. Now, what about these stones? Uh, let's look at this uh, passage again, down at verse 17. It says, you shall mount on it four rows of stones. So what we're looking at here are three stones across, four stones deep. So there's a row of four stones down and three across. And that's the general interpretation of this. It tells us here that, first of all, it says, Roby, Topaz, Emerald. We probably should note this, first of all, that the translation of the Hebrew into English here, giving the names of these stones, the, the translation is not a direct equivalency. In other words, we can't say that the Hebrew word always means what we know today as ruby, for example. And, and so, what is called ruby or in tr in translated as ruby might not have been what we call ruby, but it might also have been. Uh, what I'm saying is we don't know that for sure. It could have been some other red stone, but most likely it was what we call ruby. Particularly, the concern is about diamond. There's very little evidence that diamond was well known in that part of the world, or even known at all. And diamond, by the way, is very difficult to inscribe. <laughs> diamond is the hardest of all stones. There is no stone harder than diamond. It's 10 on Mohs hardness scale. I don't know if any of you have uh, taken any geology or mineralogy, but there, there are 10 different substances on what's called Mohs hardness scale, all the way from talc, which is, you know, the powder you rub on your face, to diamond and each step in between. Now the steps are not all perfectly even in increasing hardness because diamond is so much harder than everything else that it's uh, you know, quite a ways up there. But you know, it's possible it was diamond. But the most likely substance here was maybe white sapphire or most likely crystalline quartz, which is very common. And crystalline quartz, of course, is, is very beautiful when it's put in, you know, when it's clear and it's highly polished. It's, it doesn't have the refraction, of course, that diamond has, but it has uh, still a great beauty to it. 
So as we look at these stones, what are the colors we're talking about here? Let's, let's say that these stones are what they are translated here. All right, the first stone is ruby. And ruby is, of course, red, usually a red in color. And ruby is of the second hardest stone level of, of, of minerals. Diamond, then you come down to what is ruby. Ruby has a hardness of nine on the scale, so it's a very, very hard substance. And then you have ter uh, topaz. Now, topaz is the signal stone for hardness eight. That's, you know, they use topaz as eight on the hardness scale. Topaz is usually somewhere between a pink and a golden color. A golden brown is normal, what's called imperial topaz, precious topaz, not the quartz variety uh, we're talking about here. So we have a red stone, we have a, a golden brown stone next. And then we have emerald. And of course we know emerald is various shades of green. Emerald is uh, 8.5 on the hardness scale. It's between uh, topaz and, and uh, ruby. Then you drop to the second row. So now you have red, golden, I mean a brilliant golden color here, and, and then you have a green on the end. You drop to the second row and you have turquoise. Now this has been variously interpreted, but turquoise is probably a, a good translation here because turquoise is known to have been in existence as jewelry in the ancient Egyptian world as far back as you can trace, trace Egyptian history to at least 3500 BC. Turquoise is probably the softest of all the stones on this particular list here because it's a, it's a hydrous mineral. That is, there's water mixed into it, so it's a little bit softer, sort of like opal is softer than other minerals. But uh, it it's gets its pretty, pretty color from the copper and the iron that's mixed into the aluminum phosphate, which is the basic material of the mineral uh, turquoise. And then sapphire. Now, the, the question is here, is it sapphire or is it lapis lazuli? Lapis lazuli was a very, very common uh, deep blue uh, colored mineral that was used widely in the ancient world, particularly in Egypt. And it's in, in some ways it's somewhat similar to turquoise. But if it is sapphire, it is a blue stone, and of course lapis lazuli is also blue, so we're talking about a blue color, whichever it was. But if it were sapphire, it's again hard. Sapphire and ruby are the same mineral. They just have different impurities in them to give one red, the other blue. But it's the same mineral, corundum, uh, hardness nine. And of course, sapphire can be clear also. And then diamond, again, probably here, clear quartz, maybe white sapphire. So it's a clear colored stone. And next you have several interesting stones. You have jacinth, agate, and amethyst. Now all of these are quartz stones. With quartz is hardness seven on the scale of hardness and jacinth is probably a red-brown but could be a violet color. It's possible that it was a violet color. Agate is a striped stone. Most of us have seen agates. They, they can have clear parts to them but they usually have a white color, a blue color, and a brown color mixed together here. So it would be a very striking multicolored uh, stone. And then amethyst is purple, right? Normally it's a color uh, of various shades of purple, and it is also a quartz uh, stone. And then you come to the fourth row. The fourth row is made up of three interesting stones also. Burl. Burl is the generic name for the same mineral that emerald is. Emerald is 
beryllium aluminum silicate. And that's where you get the term beryl. Beryl, uh, though, when they use beryl separately from emerald, they usually are talking about something between a light green, kind of a, almost a, kind of a greenish, bluish color, like aquamarine, you know, which fits in, aquamarine is a type of beryl. Anywhere from aquamarine all the way down to uh, gold. Brilliant golden color. I mean, a yellow that just go, <laughs> won't stop, you know, beautiful yellows. So it, it could be anywhere in that color, kind of a yellow to, to aquamarine color for the beryl. The onyx, we normally, as we talked before, think of onyx as black. Onyx is, again, a quartz stone, but it could be anywhere from milky white to black. Could be the color here, because that's the range of the uh, basic stone. Chalcedony is the basic stone of which onyx is a variety. And then lastly, you have jasper. And jasper, again, is a quartz stone, probably red-brown in color. So you should think about this. I mean, we're talking about a beautiful array of colors here. Can you imagine him walking out in the sunlight and whang, you know, all these colors glistening uh, from his uh, chest here as these 12 different stones reflected the light of the sun. All of these are set in gold settings. We're told that there's gold filigree uh, around them. And then the whole breast piece is fixed to the ephod by this series of rings and, and gold cords and blue cord, which seems to attach up to the onyx stones on the top of the ephod here. Remember last week we talked about the fact that the ephod is, has, is kind of a, almost like an apron type thing, only it's front and rear, but it, it's attached to the top. In other words, you'd, you'd pull it on up over your body or, or pull it down over your head and then bring the two shoulder straps together with the onyx stones on the two uh, shoulders here. And then this breast piece, the two little gold things would be attached by gold cords to the little gold loops that were on these, at the base of the onyx stone. So from here to here, the breast piece is attached. And down below, you also had some more gold rings which were attached by blue cords to other gold rings sewn into the blue effet. You mentioned these various levels of hardness. Uh, maybe you said this and I missed it, but is there a lowest and a highest? What's the, what's the, what's the spectrum here between the least and the mostest? Probably between five and nine, unless we do consider what's called diamond here, diamond, and it would be ten. But turquoise would be somewhere around five-ish, and lapis lazuli, if it happened to be lapis lazuli instead of sapphire, uh, all the way up to seven, eight, eight point five, and nine would be the the is there a relative value to the hardness? Yes, there is. Um, today in, in modern gemology, and I'm not a gemologist, but I have taken mineralogy, the harder stones have greater value normally. But it also depends on other things. It depends on the clarity of the stone. It depends on the color of the stone. Uh, it depends, of course, on how the stone has been faceted and finished, the size of the stone. All of these are, are characteristics too. But everything being equal, everything being equal. Normally, the higher the hardness, the more valuable the stone. In other words, ruby is usually more valuable than, let's say, beryl, and more valuable than topaz. But any of those are considerably more valuable than any variety of quartz, be it amethyst or, or be it rose quartz or, or what it might be. And what I'm hearing, I think, is a diamond is at the top of the heap. Diamond is usually at the top of the heap. Today, from what I have understood, 
Diamond is the most expensive normally, and then emerald and ruby, ruby are right up there pretty close together, and then you drop to sapphire and topaz and some of these. In later Jewish writings, were there any claims to different stones by the tribes? Were there what? Any claims to uh, particular stones by the tribes and we are the... Oh, I have never read such, no. But <laughs> it sounds like human nature, doesn't it? <laughs> it's a very logical question, actually. But I've never read anything about it, no. It's, it's so uh, enigmatic here that we're not even sure what name was carved on what stone. You, you would think probably it would start at the top with the oldest and move on down, but we aren't told that. We aren't told that. I suppose these were part of the pillage from Egypt rather than anything they mined out there somewhere. Oh yeah, most likely, yeah. Most likely these were what they got, <laughs> took with them out of Egypt when they, when they left. Not that you can't, I don't know of any um, mines out in the Sinai for stones other than possibly copper, uh, copper related stones, which means turquoise might have been mined out there, but I, I don't know of any. Well, there are a lot of questions we could ask about this, and uh, unfortunately, we won't come up with a whole lot of answers because the whole thing is, uh, is a bit mysterious here, uh, simply because not enough detail is given for us here, and nothing has survived to us except the writings of Josephus, and I'm going to be referring to him a little bit later on here. Uh, Josephus does give us some description, but the problem with Josephus is he, he lived almost... 1400, 1300 years after this here has happened. And the question is, have they maintained the purity of this down to his day? Because the whole Babylonian captivity intervenes here. When Jerusalem is destroyed, the temple is destroyed, the ark is gone, and certainly the Babylonians carried off everything of any value, and certainly would have carried off the breastpiece here and uh, stuck it in their museum back in Babylon. And probably, you know, it's possible it was sent back because Cyrus the Great, when he sent the Israelites or allowed them to go back, did give them much of what was in the temple to take back with them. But w would that have been included? Who knows? Would the breast piece have been kept in one piece? Or would somebody have pillaged all the stones for jewelry for their favorite concubine or whatever? Who knows? So it, it just, it's just there's no historical record for us to work with. But we could hope that Josephus' description is, is fairly accurate as memory would have allowed it to be. Now, the symbolism is what's important here, of course. As each of these things we talk about them, it's the symbolism that seems to have the greatest significance here. And the symbolism is given to us in verse 29. And Aaron shall carry the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment over his heart when he enters the holy place for a memorial before the Lord continually. Does the Lord forget things? He can't. So what does this mean? Well, the, the purpose of it, of course, is for human remembrance. It's like prayer. Why does God want us to persevere in prayer? Because God was deaf the first time or busy off somewhere else, you know? No. God heard our prayer the first time, but he wants us to demonstrate that we really care that we're becoming like God in our concern for whatever the need is expressed in prayer, that we really care for this person or this need, whatever it is. So we, we pers persevere before God in, in prayer. And so the high priest will continually before God bring the names of the tribes of Israel, not because God has forgotten them, 
but as a means of the people remembering that this is our God and we need to go before him and the high priest needs to represent us before him year after year after year without fail. God is a God of perseverance. God is not a God of hit and miss. Oh, well, today, oh Lord, I'm going to worship you. Tomorrow I'm going to just do my own thing, you know. It's kind of like, I, none of you, of course, but there are people in the Christian community who, as soon as June 1st rolls around, they kind of think, uh, you know, summertime's time for vacation, so let's just kind of go off and do our thing, and, and we'll get back to church in September. As if, you know, you could take a vacation from God. Well, do you want God to take a vacation from you? You know, I don't <laughs> want God to take a vacation from me. So, you know, we need to be regular before God for our own sake. Habits need to be built in that are good habits, like the habit of prayer and being remembered before the Lord and remembering others before the Lord. The big question in this passage now comes in verse 30. And you shall put in the breastpiece of judgment the Urim and Thummim, and they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. And Aaron shall carry the judgment of the sons of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. Now the question is, what in the world are the Urim and Thummim? Well, there is, there, there is an American history, someone who says that he knew what they were. Some of you have heard of him. His name was Joseph Smith. And uh, Joseph Smith said they were rose-colored spectacles with which he was able to read the golden plates that he found at the mountain, and from that he was able to translate the Book of Mormon. Well, it's really easy to speculate on things about which you know nothing. That's why when you study the supposed evolution of the human race, you discover all this wonderful speculation about these bones that are found someplace as to what the people looked like and what they did and what they ate and where they lived and everything else, you know, just from a few bones. You can speculate and who can refute you? Further back you go, the more you can speculate with grandeur <laughs> because no one can really refute you. And so, you know, since nobody really knows what the Urim and Thummim were exactly, why uh, Joseph Smith could make up this nice little story. There are only two things that we really know about the Urim and the Thummim. First of all, that they are connected with this breastpiece and apparently kept in it if they are actually material objects. The second thing we can determine from this passage and other passages was that they were used to determine God's will when important decisions had to be made. Now, I can just think about this and think, man, every one of us wished we had them so that we say, Lord, is this the job for me? Yes, no, <laughs> you know, well, it's either a yes or it's a no, you know. Now, most scholars who have studied this uh, have come up with that fact that, or, or with what they believe is the interpretation that these were uh, material objects. But let me just look at, with you at a couple, three passages of Scripture. There are seven passages of Scripture that refer to the Urim and Thummim in the Old Testament. Seven passages. One of them is this one. Only three of them give us any information by which we could determine anything about the Urim and the Thummim. So I'd like to look at those three passages. The first is in Numbers chapter 27, verse 18. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. 
and have him stand before Eliezer the priest and before all the congregation and commission him in their sight. And you shall put some of your authority on him in order that all the congregation of the sons of Israel may obey him. Moreover, he shall stand before Eliezer the priest who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At his command they shall go out, at his command they shall come in, both he and the sons of Israel with him, even all the congregation. So here we're told that the Eliezer the priest is the one who will operate the Urim and the Thummim, and it is a statement of judgment, of decision making, and that Upon this determination, he then, therefore, will command Israel to go out, command Israel to come in, and so forth. So there seems to be a record here of Joshua and Eliezer in operation of the, of the Urim and the Thummim. Okay, let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 28. We're moving, of course, ahead in time towards the present. Into the days when Saul was king of Israel. Chapter 28, verse 4. So the Philistines gathered together and came and camped in Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel together and they camped in Gilboa. When Saul saw the camp of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him by either dreams or by Urim or by the prophet. Which tells you something about the Urim. It was still used, it was still in existence, but it was possible that it would give no answer. Possible that it would give no answer, which is what Saul got, no answer. <laughs> now, if it were just purely a dice-like thing that you threw and it came up yes or no, how could he get no answer? How could he get no answer? Okay, then finally, let's look at Ezra chapter 2. Ezra is just before Nehemiah. Ezra chapter 2. Beginning, uh, well, reading two verses, 62 and 63. Ezra 2, 62 and 63. Now, what we have here is a list of all the returnees, those who are coming back from the Babylonian captivity. They're coming back to the Holy Land. And we've come to a group amongst the returnees who are a little bit enigmatic here. These searched among their ancestral registration, but they could not be located. Therefore, they were considered unclean and excluded from the priesthood. And the governor said to them that they should not eat from the most holy things until a priest stood up with Urim and Thummim. These were a group of people who were of the Levitical tribe, but they weren't able to accurately trace their genealogy. That was very important to Israel, to be able to trace their genealogy. And if they couldn't trace their genealogy back to Aaron and his sons, then they couldn't prove themselves to be priests. Levites, yes, but not priests. And therefore, they couldn't partake of what the priests were supposed to partake of. And the idea here is, until someone stood up with Urim and Thummim, that is, a priest came along who could discern, who could discover the truth about the heritage of these people. Now, when you look at that, a priest who stood up with Urim and Thummim that seems to indicate something other than a material object, doesn't, doesn't it? Well, let me just say here that the idea, of course, is to discover a clear decision, a right decision in the midst of a problem, when a dilemma is faced. 
Now, first of all, we, we noted in, in the first passage that Eliezer did use Urim and Thummim on behalf of Joshua. But there is no statement in Scripture that Aaron ever used it on behalf of Moses. Now, the reason for that is, I believe, Moses was a prophet of God. Moses was God's mouthpiece. God spoke through Moses. Moses didn't need any other means of determining God's purpose and God's will. God spoke through him. Now, the Urim and Thummim seems later, particularly in the case of Saul, to have become some kind of a crutch that Israel could lean on. You know, there's no prophet around, or at least they're not listening to any prophets, and so we'll, we'll try the Urim, which didn't work on behalf of Saul at that particular time. The, I think one of the reasons that Urim and Thummim are not often mentioned in Scripture is that God was constantly sending prophets to Israel. I mean, how many prophets were there? I mean, you start reading through the Old Testament, and there were a bunch of them. God kept sending a prophet to Israel to speak to Israel and tell him what his will was. And one of the important things that God kept hammering home is, you can't know my will about this specific thing to do until you're obedient to what you already know is my plan for your life. If you're walking in disobedience, don't expect me to tell you what you're to do in this situation. And of course, if you come backwards then from that, and, and you find a person who is walking closely with the Lord and is in the Word and prayer, you often find that that person doesn't need some kind of fleece to discover God's will. Because it just becomes obvious. Because God reveals His will continually in the lives of those who are close to Him. As I said, many scholars do believe that there were actually some kind of a dice that were thrown, and uh, by which... Uh, determination, a yes and a no option came up. But in the passage we looked at, it kind of makes that seem a little doubtful. Because as I said before, if you have a yes and no and those are the only two options, how could Saul not get an answer? You know, it's either a yes or it's a no. You either fight or don't fight. You know, what are you going to do here? Did the thing fall on the edge and stick corner up, you know? <laughs> Cock dice as you play a game, you know? Well, there were two and one said yes and no and you got a yes and a no. Oh. Yeah, you mean if there are more than uh, two, two sets and each with a yes and a no, huh? And you throw, well, that, yeah, that, that would not be too helpful, I don't think. But yeah, I could understand where that might be if that were so. Uh, the problem that was faced here by Saul, every time he th had them thrown, they came up yes and no. <laughs> now, further understanding may come from knowing what the meaning of the two words is. What is the meaning of Urim and what is the meaning of, of Thummim? Well, the word Urim means illumination. The word Thummim means truth. Illumination and truth. Illumination and truth. So many scholars, particularly the classical 19th century scholars Kyle and Delich, uh, believe that it does not refer to a material object that was thrown, but refers to the priest properly attired, standing in the presence of God, illumined by the Spirit of God and given truth by the Spirit of God, going into the presence of God and discovering the answer. Now, when you think about that, you could see where Saul would go ask the priest and he'd go before God and God would not give an answer. Then you could say, well, Saul didn't receive any answer. I went in there and God would not respond. This also seems to fit with the Ezra passage where it says, until a priest arises with, with Urim and Thummim, 
Well, you, you might say, what's the problem, you know? I mean, here's the Urim Thummim, just give them to a priest, you know, and, and have him throw them. But until a priest arises who obviously has the illumination of God and the truth of God in his mind and heart, God's anointed man seems to be possibly the understanding here. Now, for you and for me, even though we might say it would be very practical to have a little set of something, long as there was no maybe and there weren't two yeses and two noes, where you could just throw it and get a yes or no and you knew what to do, how simple life would be, wouldn't it? You know? Do I take this job? Do I take that job? Do I marry her? Do I marry him? Yeah, I mean, just think of all those decisions that we've had to make down through time that could have been so simple that way. But God isn't into making life so simple for us that we have no faith, that we don't learn the mind of God. How do we know what is right? How do we know what is wrong? By knowing the character of God, by knowing the Word of God, by having the illumination of God. You and I don't need a Urim and Thummim in the sense of dice because we already have Urim and Thummim, right? We have this book, the Thummim, the truth. We have the Spirit of God living within us, the Urim, the illumination. And illumination and truth are really the same thing, two sides of the same coin. In fact, that's why I put uh, John chapter 16 here for us to, to look at and to understand how this is relevant to us. I mean, it's not that God is talking so about some enigmatic thing long time ago that is irrelevant to us. But if you turn to chapter 16 of John, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says this, and when he says something to his disciples in general, he is speaking to you and he is speaking to me. Verse 13, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will disclose to you what is to come. He shall glorify me. He shall take of mine and shall disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. You and I, as true believers, have the spirit of truth dwelling right in here. The, the illuminating spirit of truth. So we have the indwelling Urim and Thummim. You and I may have a quandary from time to time, but the scripture says that if we lack wisdom, ask of God and he will grant us the wisdom. And then as we seek his face, we move ahead as the door opens for us and we find God's way in our lives. No matter how difficult the decision may be, God will reveal it in his time as we need to know it by the Spirit that dwells within us and through the Word of God that we have to illuminate our path. The you know, Word of God is what? A lamp unto our path, a light unto our feet, we're told in the Psalms. This passage in John also helps us to have a little more insight into the Trinity. You know, Because we're told that the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth, but He will not speak on His own initiative which implies that he could speak on his own initiative because he is an equal person of the divine trinity. But in this relationship with mankind, he has a particular role to take. And this is the role he fulfills. And he speaks to us of Christ, 
who is yet the third member of the Trinity, has another role to fill. And we, we always have to remember, we don't put the Trinity in, in some kind of a priority here, you know, Father, Spirit, Son, or Father, Son, Spirit in, in descending order. It's Father, Son, Spirit. They are co-equal in every way. You know, Jesus, we're told, didn't seek to hold on to the equality with the Father. But because of the plan that they put into effect, that God put into effect, they have this working relationship, I guess we could say. I hope that's not uh, you know, derogatory in any way. Uh, of, the, of the triune God. And, and the Spirit willingly gives what is the will of the Father through Christ to us. Not that he is in disagreement, because they are in total harmony. I keep using the word they, but that's, you know, I don't know how else to, to do it. Uh, because we have three persons, but one Godhead. So Urim and Thummim, you and I have it. You and I have it. And you and I have it in a way that the Old Testament people didn't have. Because in the Old Testament, they didn't have the Spirit indwelling in the same manner that we have. The Spirit of God did come upon them. And we read in Joshua, that Joshua in whom the Spirit of God dwelt. But it was not every person who was a believer didn't have the Spirit of God in the same way you and I have. Because as soon as we're born again, we have the Spirit of God. Past scripture says, if we don't have the Spirit of God, we're not His. And then, of course, we have the whole counsel of God with us. Genesis through Revelation. We have the whole counsel of God. And, and there's no reason for us not understanding what God's plan is from the creation until the recreation, from paradise lost to paradise regained. We have the whole scoop, as it were. And there is no other religious book that is assembled this way, that is logical this way, uh, which, which has the power, of course, that the Bible has. Uh, not the Koran, not the Bhagavad Gita, not a, any of the other Vedic writings or anything. Begin to compare with the Bible in that sense. Question from the Ezra passage. Uh, it's clear in the Exodus that this was for the high priest. This, uh, when we moved into the Exodus, are they saying perhaps that there is not at this point a high priest, someone who is appointed to that, right. and so when the high priest comes, he will make that determination? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the whole, uh, the whole high priestly thing has been lost in the um, captivity, and there was, no, there was no high priestly person in the captivity, because the whole thing went into a synagogue-type situation, right, back during that uh, Babylonian situation, and they lost the... Uh, well, of course, without the temple and, and without the uh, Ark of the Covenant, they, they lost the whole sacrificial system in terms of the appropriateness of it. I just think some might say, well, we're waiting for these to come back from Babylon. And so when these show up, then we will have them to go ahead and make this determination. Yeah, except the way it's worded there, it doesn't sound that way. But yeah, yeah, yeah. that's possible. In Jesus' time, they had a high priest. When was that reestablished? Well, when they, when, they when they reestablished the temple, uh, Zerubbabel came back and they rebuilt the temple and they went back into the program of, of sacrifice again. And I don't remember, do you remember whether uh, they name a high priest at that time in, in specific? I don't think they do. At the return under Zerubbabel. Joshua. Joshua. That's right. He's in Zechariah, mentioned in Zechariah too. Yeah. Yeah, they did reestablish the priesthood at that time, the high priesthood.
thing that happens there, you referred to it already, is that the temple from the post-exilic time on becomes much more secularized, especially in the intertestamental period and in Jesus' time. It was there's very, very little spirituality left in it. But the synagogue, as you pointed out, became this more, much more the spiritual hub where uh, Paul and Jesus identified with. Right. This is a big change, you know, took place. Yeah. The high priesthood, now you, you te- Dr. Walmart teaches the intertestamental period uh, history at the college, and they, they talk about the high priests in the days of the Hasmoneans, right? And uh, so there are certain named ones at that time even. But do the Jews have a record from the time that Zerubbabel to the days of Jesus, a continuous record anywhere that you know of, of the high priests? Well, I don't think it, I think they have because Mattathias was a retired high priest, the one that kicked off the revolt. Right. And then they became the priest kings, but mm-hmm. then they were men of blood, and so the whole quarrel there was whether, you know, these, these uh, bloody sword-chopping generals should also be the one that goes into the high, to the Holy of Holies once a year. But when it became separated, the Sadducees were the temple aristocracy and they didn't even believe in afterlife. They didn't believe in angels. They just deists really what they were. So I mean it became totally secularized. The, the temple. Yeah. And you see Jesus kicking against some of that one two times when he purified the temple. Yeah. He wasn't too happy with it. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, so we you know we lose the the track of things as we go into the captivity and then come back and reestablish everything. The the track from the old is seems to be lost and as I think I mentioned to you, well, as I know I mentioned to you before, the Ark of the Covenant disappeared at least by the time of Nebuchadnezzar. And as Jeremiah said, and we read the passage in Jeremiah, the Ark of the Covenant would be gone and would not be reestablished or, or found again. So that really changed things relative to the kind of worship that uh, took place. So everything was different. And uh, You mentioned that the stones were probably cut up and or used and long gone, but... If the ark is the ark of the covenant intact because they couldn't physically touch it to take it apart, you know they had to use those, I mean, those rods and things to move it. So to physically say I'm going to melt this down or, or physically destroy it, so is your feeling that it's just hidden somewhere? That's not my feeling, but that is uh, the feeling of many Jews. They do feel that the ark of the covenant was spirited off and placed someplace. Uh, some say Jeremiah spirited it off and hid it in the, in the Jordan Valley, or some say it's hidden on Mount uh, Sinai. Of course, as you know, in, in the Raiders of the Lost Ark, the theory was that when Shishak came in, that it was taken off that time and carried off to Egypt. And So I, I don't think that one is correct. I think it was lost in the days of Nebuchadnezzar from the way Jeremiah talks about it. But it's the same way with the temple. Why was Nebuchadnezzar's forces able to destroy the temple? Because the glory of the Lord had departed. I mean, Ichabod was written up there. And so there was no power left there. So I think when the Ark of the Covenant disappeared, you know, God's glory was no longer with it. It wasn't like it was in the days of the Philistines. God's glory was still with it, and the Philistines paid a high price. But I think, when, I think the glory of God was gone, and He no longer appeared or, or spoke to them from above the mercy seat. And so it just became another wooden box with gold on it. and could easily, I think, been destroyed, melted down, whatever. I had read a book, and I've never been to Israel, so I'll throw it out to you guys, that when Jesus was crucified, 
on this mount where he was, this is how I mentally picture it. Are there catacombs underneath? Because this author states that the Ark of the Covenant, uh, wouldn't it be, God writes like in poetry and metaphors many times, that the blood of Christ through his death on that cross, that there were catacombs underneath where the Ark of the Covenant was, and that Christ's blood actually uh, came down on the Ark of the Covenant. So, is there things like that under where Jesus is crucified? Well, the, um, yeah, the whole thing over there is pretty sticky. The, you go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre today, which is the traditional site of Golgotha. And you go inside and you go into the little orthodox place where they, where they say Jesus' body was laid. That, that, of course, was supposed to have been a cave in Golgotha. In other words, Golgotha is under this church that was built there. And that Jesus was buried in this cave, which was a, a cave, a, a tomb carved in Golgotha itself. And almost all those mountains around there uh, have catacombs and other things in them, or I should say caves and whatever. The Temple Mount has been x-rayed with, uh, with radar and uh, se seismic radiation, um, and seismic waves and so forth, and found that there are a lot of open spaces below the, the Temple Mount. And there are those who speculate all kinds of things about that. Some argue, yeah, the Ark of the Covenant is in one of those uh, openings down under the Temple Mount. But the problem with crawling around under the Temple Mount is the top of the Temple Mount belongs to the Mohammedan faith. And the Mohammedans aren't too pleased with people honeycombing their ways <laughs> underneath this place. And so the whole thing is, is up in the air right now as to what could be uh, going on there. Now, there is also to the north of the wall of Jerusalem a place called Gordon's Calvary, which General Charles Gordon because of the appearance of the rocks here, which are very striking, uh, looks like the face of a skull on side. And so the argument is that Jesus was crucified up there and that he was uh, buried, therefore, uh, to the north of the, of the city someplace. But there aren't very many scholars who accept that particular site. Most of them, in the final analysis, after they look through everything, kind of come back to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre being on the probable site of Calvary. But there's anything that's possible because today if you go to the old city of Jerusalem you are walking what 30 feet or so above the city where Jesus walked. I mean there's been that much rubble and rebuilding of the city so that you're 30, you're walking 30 feet above where Jesus actually walked. Because when Titus's forces destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70, I mean they they pried all the stones loose. Jesus said the temple not one stone would be left on another. They, they really destroyed the place, and so this huge pile of rubble was there. And then the Romans came in and rebuilt a, a Roman city on it. And then, of course, over the centuries, it's changed. But You know, when Jesus was talking to a Samaritan woman, he said, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming now is when neither on this mount nor in Jerusalem. It seems to me at that point that he was relegating all of those temporal things to relative insignificance, at least he said, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And I think that has to be kept in pretty, John 16, yeah, which you yeah. read, I think, again, brings us back to yeah, that. Yeah, that's important. And I think that's where the Urim and Thummim, as spiritual illumination coming through the Word and the Spirit of God, is where the key is for us today. And really was the key was then, too, whether it was a physical device or not. 